Welcome to the Work, Wealth, and Travel podcast. I'm your host, Nicole, and this podcast is your guide to start creating a lifestyle by design. From entrepreneurship, money and finance, taxes and residencies, and everything in between, this show highlights the nuances of a true global citizen lifestyle. Let's dive in. Welcome back to the show. And in today's episode, I sit down with Brian Dryskull. Now, this was such an interesting conversation. Brian really marries his expertise in digital marketing with savvy real estate investments to help his clients maximize their potential. He has a long history of success in marketing, first starting out as an independent freelancer in the online space helping businesses strengthen their SEO back in the early 2000s. He started out as a one-man show working from home via Odesk, which is now what we know and love as Upwork, with the goal to help as many people as possible grow and to work together online. Now, Brian has achieved financial success by following his BRRRR model, which we will chat about in the episode. And he now owns an excess of $5 million worth of real estate. But he is a savvy investor, carefully keeping his debt levels under control at around $800,000. His motto is never over leverage. So in this episode, not only do we chat about online entrepreneurship, but also how Brian brought that into the physical space through real estate. Let's dive in. Brian, welcome to the Work, Wealth, and Travel podcast. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. But before we dive into all things business, what it looks like, what your business journey has looked like, as well as a few other topics, I'd love to hear more about your story, where you got started, and where you are today. So I got started back in like 2005 in the digital space. Okay. So I originally got started on a, a forum, just browse around. It's called Warrior Forum, way back in the day. Just tinkering around with SEO, trying to figure out how websites work, things like that. And then eventually I figured out how some things work. And I started freelancing on a website that was called Odesk, which then turned into Upwork. So I started way back then just consulting with people for 20 bucks an hour on how to do SEO, things like that. And it scaled into a full business. Like I literally grew a business sitting on my couch off of Upwork. Hmm. So I did that. I started an agency called Think Big Marketing. At the same time, what I did was I took the profits from that business and invested them in real estate. So I think big marketing, which grew into an agency that we did e-commerce, lead generation, a lot of bigger stuff once I got going. And then I took the profits, bought properties, and then that kind of merged. I now do digital marketing for real estate investors. So me buying properties and understanding the digital market, I kind of married the two. And now we do digital marketing for real estate investors on a, on a national level. So it's kind of kind of the short version of what I do. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I love that you started in the online space before starting in the online space was really even a thing. So to get started, what were some challenges that you faced? Was it was there a lot of people on Upwork? Was Upwork well known? What did it look like kind of being one of the first to work digitally decades ago before anybody was working online like the way it is now? Yeah, it was interesting because I was on it on Odesk too. So no one even knew what that was. It was Odesk and Elance. They were the two competition companies, right? And then they merged, like Upwork kind of consumed both of them. It was interesting though, because people online, especially in the e-commerce space, things like that, know that they needed digital marketing. But most people don't even understand SEO now. But way back then, it's like, you know what? I want to rank in Google. I don't know how. And there's no rule book. 
it's kind of like you learn, build some links, quality links, content, things like that. So, so it's kind of finding people, which is where I use the platform Upwork to find the people that needed help and then help them. And I was just billing hourly at the time. So it was different back then though, just with, cause it's kind of more like the wild west back then. And I like that you continue to scale it and brought it to what it is today. So let's talk about first the investing side of things. I'd love to hear more detail about what that looks like so we can dive into that a little bit further and how the investing kind of relates into the SEO and the digital marketing aspect. Sure. So I invest in real estate, right? So what I do, it's called the Burr method. It's like buy, remodel, was buy, remodel. Basically, it's you buy a house, you fix it, you rent it out. And then you get your money back from the bank. So I get houses for free, basically. In a nutshell, say I buy a house for hundred grand, I put thirty thousand into the repair. I have one hundred thirty into it now. And now appraises for two hundred thousand. I rent it to a tenant that might pay me fifteen hundred a month. I go to the bank, say, "Hey, can I have a hundred fifty thousand dollar loan? It's worth two hundred, so they don't have a problem." The tenant's paying the property off, and it cost me zero dollars because I got all my initial cash back to do it again. So go ahead, the burn method, right? So that's what I do on the real estate side. I do it right in my backyard. I don't go out really far, but basically I buy junky houses, fix them up, and just, I hoard houses. And I know that you only stay within one zip code for the house that you buy. Is that correct? Yeah. I'm curious about what that looks like because one zip code is not, you know, I'm not from America, but I know one zip code is not super huge. So is there enough to buy and what what does that look like what are some struggles that you've had within using this method as well that you had to overcome within your investing journey specifically so the reason i only invest in a small area is because i'm really busy like real estate investing is my side hustle digital marketing is my main trade so i'm busy i have a big team of people not big but we have a team of guys that we're managing and i don't have time to drive 30 minutes to go look at a property then manage contractors i want to keep it like 10 minute drive max so that's why i keep it really small it is challenging though, because I live in a nicer neighborhood. There's only so many houses to pop up that are beat up versus if I did the whole city, I'd be able to pick up a lot more properties at once, but I make more money in my day job than investing in real estate. That's more like if real estate is pushing cash to the future, it's the investment plan. So it's kind of slowly, I pick up like three or four properties a, a year, maybe I probably got like 20 or so houses now. Uh, so nothing super crazy, but I just keep trying to stack them on. So I definitely want to talk about your day job, as you call it, and what that looks like a little bit more. But before kind of going off this topic of investing, I'm curious now, your investment journey, I guess, what what has that looked like in terms of getting started? Did your day job, as you call it, start funding the investment? Or what did it look like if somebody is listening who wants to get started investing what would you say is the capital required? Do you need capital? Can you leverage it somehow? Like, what does that journey look like? And then how did you scale it up to buying three, four? You could buy more properties if you wanted to per year to really being able to purchase an infinite amount of properties if you wanted and then get your good return on that. What has that journey looked like? For you? And so initially what I did was I didn't have $100,000, $200,000 sitting around, right? So what I did is in, a, in the US, we take a commercial loan. You have to put 20% down at the purchase price. So if I buy a property for hundred grand, I only had to have $20,000 to buy the property. The only problem there is once you put 20,000 down, you can't get it back. So I put 20 grand in the property. Now I have $0. I only owe 80 on the mortgage. And then I got to save up money for the next one. So initially when you get started though, start small, like just go get a loan. Eventually I worked up and I saved up enough cash. to be able to go spend a hundred, $200,000 cash, 
Then I buy the property. I go to the bank. They give me all my money back. And now it's just a cycle. Like I'm just literally reusing the same money. But when I first got started though, I had to just put 20% down to get into it. I love that you're sharing this because I find it so unfathomable in my mind. And of course, I'm sure you wouldn't find this because you do it every day that a house can be 20 or 30 grand upfront. And then what did you say? Like a hundred grand to buy, like very inexpensive. Because I think when we think home costs these days, we're thinking, you know, me from Canada, I'm thinking a million for something very standard. And I'm sure it's somewhere in that range in the States. So I like that you're sharing this because I think that's it's not talked about enough how low you even, of course, it's a, it's a fixer upper, but how low a home price can be and then how you can make a return on that investment. Right. And you figure if you're trying to buy properties, the, the reason you can get them for a discount is because somebody has a problem. So like I know one property I bought last year, they is a hoarder house. Like there was so much garbage in this house. The house was in disrepair. Like literally at three, we had three 30 yard dumpsters, like the really big dumpsters full of stuff they just left. So you're, you're basically trying to find people that have problems that want to sell their house and they're willing to sell it for a discount because they don't care about the money as much as they care about. I didn't like for one example would be someone just inherits a home. They're working nine to five paycheck to paycheck. Most people think when you inherit a home, it's like, boom, we just got money. A lot of people inherit homes. They need a lot of work. So they just got a problem. They need to clean it out. They need to fix it, which they can't afford to do to get it onto the market to sell it. So a lot of times in those situations, it's like, hey, you know what? Let's come up with a fair price. You don't have to do anything. No money out of pocket. We'll just buy the property from you. So you kind of find win-wins that way. And I'm sure that there are, you have a, a checklist of problems that you'll take on and problems that you won't take on. Because I can imagine some problems are going to be a lot more expensive than maybe even a home to fix if it is a really deep-rooted problem. So now, okay, so this is kind of going into the weeds a little bit. But on that note, do you find that there are a lot of extra fees that you have to account for when you are um, buying an investment property and renovating it, such as, you know, the, the lawyer fees, ensuring that the house is going to be in good enough condition that you don't have to redo all the plumbing or piping or something like that? How does that work? Or is that just part of that comes out of the loan money? So there's not many fees you don't encounter as long as you do like title insurance, things like that. The main problems are the re repairs. So you have to be really good at looking through a property and estimating within a ten dollars or $20,000 range, what needs done. So for example, like most things won't scare me away as long as the price is right for the property. Like every property is worth something and it makes sense. So I bought properties and we had to completely change the foundations out. But obviously it's a lot of work and there's a lot more risk there. So you have to get it cheaper. But yeah, that's the number, probably one of the top things that I see new investors go in and they don't estimate their repairs properly. They, th they expect it's going to be 40 grand and it ends up being 100. And you're, you're kind of screwed or just dealing with the wrong contractors, like dealing with the contractors in the phone book, like the big companies that sell just $50,000 kitchens. You need investor friendly contractors that know how to put kitchens together with builders grade materials versus $50,000 cabinets. And those are things I think that a lot of people wouldn't think about when getting into that market. Okay. So that's really interesting. I'd love to chat also about your, as you call it, your day job. What does that look like? What do you do? And yeah, let's let's start with that and then we can kind of go from there. So currently right now, what we do is we do digital marketing for real estate investors. So we generate on a national level leads of people that are motivated to want to sell, like people that we want to buy their houses, right? So we generate leads through Google Pay-Per-Click, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, all the different channels, generate that lead of somebody that wants to sell. 
And then we sell that lead and connect them with an investor in their area that wants to buy the house. So we kind of pair like Mary over here, who's got the inherited house and Fred who wants to buy it. We put them together. Oh, interesting. So basically what you're doing is your, your side hustle, if you call it that, with the investments for homes, you're helping other people do that as you're a full-time. Right. Yeah. Because originally I was doing Think Big Marketing, which was like a national marketing company. And then we merged into only doing it for real estate investors. So yeah, we do digital marketing now for real estate investors, pairing them with the people that want to sell their house. I'm sure there's a huge market for that. Okay. So let's chat about the the specifics of that because digital marketing, there are so many facets to digital marketing online these days. And I'm sure a lot of people listening have either dabbled in digital marketing, have done digital marketing within their own business. Maybe they're freelancing with digital marketing. So you mentioned that you do ads. I know you do some lead generation through the ads. What have you found? And you have a lot of channels, it sounds like, <clears throat> that you have experimented with. So what have you found works? What doesn't work? What are the, some of the conclusions that you've drawn from many years within the digital marketing and ad space industry as well? So in the lead generation, a lot of mistakes I see people making are they go out and make a really fancy website before generating traffic. So as I see a lot of guys are like, hey, let's go spend five, ten thousand dollars for a website. Like, go get your website made, get it at least presentable with really clear call to actions and send traffic to it. Generate money first and then opt it. Like traffic needs to come before you get into the fancy websites. Right. So that, that's one thing I see there. Uh, what works? So I see really direct messaging. Like, so for example, in the housing space with we're targeting motivated sellers, uh, messaging like sell your house fast. We buy houses, we pay cash. Uh, we're cash home buyers. Messaging like that. A lot of people get into the space and they're like, uh, find out how much your house is worth. You'll get a lot of leads really cheap, but they're going to be garbage. They just want to know how much their house is worth. They don't want to sell. So I see things like that and uh, keeping creatives really clear, like not all jumbled with lots of words, like just sell your house fast. Or whatever you're in, like if you're selling a product, whatever it is, just make that message resonate with someone so they know exactly what it is within a second. Yeah, I like that you mentioned that because I do see in the online space today, especially within ads, that there's there's so many words, there's so many pieces to the puzzle. It's like when somebody's clicking on it, they oftentimes don't even really know the business that they're going to be clicking onto. So it has to be as direct as possible. And I think that, yeah, I, I love analyzing ads and seeing what works and what doesn't. And all the ads I see that perform well for businesses ac across the board, not one specific industry, they are all just direct, you know, one image, one or two lines of text, keeping it as simple as possible. So you know quite a bit about SEO. You also know about ads. What have you found now in terms of SEO? So you mentioned driving um, the traffic to the website. Do you do that through SEO? Do you do that through ads? Do you do that? What does that really look like? And yeah, let's start there because I would love to dive a little bit more into SEO as well after. So it depends on what's, what phase you're in in your business, right? Like a lot of people are like, I'm brand new in business. I want to get going on SEO. SEO, you're going to get leads in like six months. Like it's not going to be tomorrow. So a lot of people, it's like, go spend money on fa Facebook's probably going to be your cheapest barrier entry to get a quality lead if you push people through a website. So we'll step back on that one real quick. In Facebook, you can market multiple ways. You can market, they call it a Facebook lead form which is where an ad shows in Facebook and you click the submit button or you click the call to action button and it pops up the form right inside of Facebook. Some people consider that a lead. It's a real low quality lead, in my opinion, because Facebook's pre-populating your information with your email and phone number you put in there 15 years ago when you signed up. What I recommend is have them click the ad, direct them to your website that's, that has strong call to action and messaging there and use your website as a disqualifier to get the tire kickers out 
and, and push traffic that way. That's a really good way to generate leads and, and get some quality. And on Facebook, you're really paying per impression. So Google pay per click, you're paying per click. So depending on what space you're in, I'm in a real estate space, we're spending $50, $60 a click sometimes. Uh, same with mortgages, life insurance. Uh, on Facebook, we're paying per impression and we're competing to show ads in a demographic. So I'm competing with bakeries and shoe stores, like just the local businesses in those areas. So it's not in direct competition with the really uh, competitive guys. So it's gonna depend what niche you're in, what's gonna be the best. Google has really good intent. So say, say we uh, are marketing in Google, someone types in sell my house fast. They already, they're looking for us versus Facebook, we're interrupting them. But Google's a lot more expensive per click. So you kind of have to build a funnel there. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree with that. Okay, so let's chat. <laughs> this this can be a topic, but I'm curious your opinion on this. AI and the kind of what that is going to look like. What do you see and how are you maybe changing the direction a little bit of your business or what does that look like for you in terms of, you know, for me, I, it's very interesting because I actually find myself, I have ChatGPT saved right on my homepage. So if I have any question now, you know, sometimes I'll go to YouTube. I think a lot of people do, but I'll go to ChatGPT and I see that increasingly in the future with so many different types of AI that this could potentially be a trend. And I know Google has to pull that or AI has to pull that information from somewhere. But what do you see some trends in the future looking like for people who are running Google ads, for people who are doing the SEO, doing the blog posts? And maybe how are you changing your business model somewhat or the way that you're advertising somewhat to make way for this AI revolution that will soon be coming, I, I think at least. Yeah, I, I think so too. So it's interesting here, right? So Facebook and Google, like all the, all the platforms, they've been using AI for years. They just don't tell us about it. That's how Facebook can deliver such relevant ads to you. Uh, not to go too far in the weeds. So if we're generating leads on Facebook, right? We send them to the website and we have a Facebook pixel on a website. That's a piece of code on every single page that's showing, okay, this person went onto our website. Now we cookied them. On the thank you page, we put a, a lead event showing, okay, whoever hits this page triggers this event. and we're going to section those people off. Well, what, what Facebook's doing on the back end, it's looking at, okay, all these people we send to the website, a certain percentage of them filled out a form or bought your product or added the cart, whatever it is. And once they get enough people there, Facebook's algorithm can use AI. And they're, they're basically looking at the demographics of all the people and trying to put your ads in front of more people like that. So that's constantly been going on on the marketing side. Now, what's getting interesting here is now, normal people can start using AI also for all kinds of things. So they're taking all these different, all the different tech and all these data points and things and putting it into people so we can use it. I'm seeing benefit on even just writing emails and writing website copy, things like that. We're using it for that. I was, I was messing with the website and I'm not a coder. I understand code, but I'm not like a, a hardcore coder. And I was trying to see where an error was on some CSS we had. Maybe it was JavaScript. So I just popped the script into chat GPT and said, Hey, why is this not working? Basically. And it pops out the final script. So I'm like, that kind of stuff's cool. Bots are going to be really cool. Like if you can make really smart bots based on AI, um, that's going to be interesting. Also, I think it's going to open up a lot of different things. I don't think it's going to take people's jobs away. I think it's going to give people actually more jobs of managing it, like creating things that can work with it. Yeah, it's so interesting you mentioned that because I was just on a client call this morning 
And she wanted a really simple piece of code. But again, you know, neither of us are, are coders. And she wanted a simple piece of code to make uh, a tracker, kind of like a calculator. And so she was like, you know what, let's type it in chat GPT. I don't think it's going to work. We'll probably have to like hire someone on Fiverr for a few bucks to just code this. It worked. It was wild. She just put it directly into her website. It's there with you put in the date. It gives you the like, it's wild. So ChatGPT, yeah, there's there's a lot of uses around that. So I like that you bring that up because I do think, yeah, it, it's very interesting where that's going to go in the future with chatbots and kind of like once you get them trained and you look like you have something to say. Yeah, I was just, I just popped in my head, but you're good. You can read my face like that. The the facial, like the videos, I, I don't know if you've seen them on Facebook yet and Instagram and things like that. The fake people that are creating content, like, so someone's going to write a script. They put it into one AI that creates it and uh, makes it a audible transcript, like someone speaking. And then they take it in another AI software and then they're putting it into a person that's speaking it. And then they're using these as ads. And it, it's really creepy, especially now, because what we see now is like three years behind anyways. So really where the tech is before it comes mainstream, it's, it's going to be crazy, I believe. And scary because like someone could take your face with your voice and make an ad saying something that you might not have said. I think there are definitely a lot of things in the future that could be destructive with AI. And I'm curious to see how the industry is going to try to mitigate that. I had something else. Oh, yeah, I just purchased a, a new tool that I'm using for podcasting. And it can, you can be looking in a different direction and it will, AI will make your eyes look directly straight ahead at the screen. Now let's chat more about, we've talked about the investing and the business aspect that you have a family. What does it look like and how have you built your business to work for you in a sense so that you can enjoy your life and enjoy the freedom that being a business owner gives you as well, while still operating your business and making sure that things are going smoothly in the background. Sure. So initially when I started my business and when I was freelancing for like over 10 years, I was doing it all on my own with like a couple of people. So it was a time suck. Like the tipping point was when I started delegating, like finding and having like having people, bringing people on a team, they could help me with some things and buying back some time. Like now I work from, I don't know, I wake up early. So I wake up at like 4am just naturally. I'll work from like six in the morning to like 5pm or something. So not like super long days, but it's longer than some people, I guess. But then at nights and weekends, I'm not working. Or if I want to take off today, like if I don't want to do anything, I got people doing it, so I'm good. But initially, when I first started, it's like, you got to hustle. Like everyone's like, oh, I'm going to start a business and live and travel. Like you can travel if you do it right, if you're disciplined. Um, but everyone's like, hey, I'm just going to start a business and I'm going to be rich. Like it's not like that. You got to put in the sweat, get punched in the face, which I wish I would have, wish I would have known about all this, like all these digital nomads and everything now when I was single. So it's like, geez, man. That would be sweet. Like now I got a family, so I can't really, we're all remote. Like we don't have any offices, but I'm not working in Paris and then going to wherever. But yeah, just starting. It's like, okay, hustle, figure out your, figure out your business, then optimize, pull people in. They can do the things that I basically hire things out that other people can do. And then special, and then you do the things that you can't find anyone else to do like the high level things. I kind of like that the business owner, they're really thinking about the next steps, where it's going to go. That's really something that you can't outsource. Hopefully you don't want to outsource that. Um, and yeah, yeah. As regarding your kind of, you know, nomad, uh, starting a business, I think that's so accurate. And I, it's, it's so talked about online, especially as the way that I, I see it. And I consume a lot of the content for entrepreneurship and business, but I'm in so many just low quality Facebook groups. And I'll see people posting like, 
I quit my job and I started a business and it's really hard and now I want to go back to work. <laughs> it's like nobody talks about that side of business. And for me, you know, on my platforms, I try to be very open about what it looks like to travel and be nomadic because that's my specific lifestyle and to do all these things that I love. But also I'm at my computer most days, some nights, you know, I, I prefer working at night. So sometimes it kind of looks like in the daytime, I'll get things done and then I'm working really late or I'm working all day and all night. And I think that there is such a, I don't want to say like a stereotype. I don't know what the proper word would be, but there's such a stigma around it that you can start an online business and it'll just be easy and you can get AI to help you and do it for you. And like, yes, all of those things are true, but you it does require you to put in the work for years. It's not just a, a one year and done thing. And I think that is not seen or talked about enough. So I appreciate you bringing that up in your journey and what that has looked like for you as well. Yeah. And it depends. Okay. So you either have a side hustle or a business too. A lot of people are like, Okay, but here, here's here's an example what I I picture. I always pictured when I'm in when I'm running by myself for like ten years, I always figured that I feel like I'm the fat dude at a buffet, and I don't know when they're shutting the food off. So in business, it's like okay, you have your clients, you have money coming in, it might might be gone tomorrow. So you always have that stress there, and it's like people are like, oh yeah, I want to start my own business. If you're gonna start your own business to make the same money you make in your job. You got to weigh the options versus freedom versus versus money because you're getting a lot more stress and a lot more hours. It's like you got to really want it because it's a high risk. And like me, I got to make like five times what I can make work at eight to five to even justify it. But it's like it's like everyone looks at it, the guy doing the business it's like, OK, I'm riding a lion and everyone's looking. at it, It's like, oh, wow, that guy's riding a lion. He's freaking awesome. And then you're sitting there on the lion thinking, like, what am I doing? How do I get off this thing? So it's like constant, a lot of head games. And things like that too but it's like you just got to be like really disciplined and really think it through and it's not easy and now i know that there are so many things that we could discuss in terms of different topics now is there anything that you find that's important in terms of business entrepreneurship lifestyle wellness that we haven't touched on yet that you would like to mention yeah i'd say anything in, in business one thing i know that i've found a lot you're going to fail a lot i always just tell myself just try one more time because everyone's like you got to go make a million dollars. No, you got to go figure something out and you're going to fail. And then you're going to not want to do it because you're like, oh, I got to figure out how to make a million bucks again. And I keep failing. It's like, no, just go try one more time to make that website work or whatever it is. And just keep making forward movement versus focus. on. Obviously, you have to have the big goal. But like in the day to day, just keep making progress, like step by step. That's helped me a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. So and you saying that what did some of your failures probably, you know, years back when you were starting and maybe transitioning from freelance into more of a business or into the investment aspect? What were some of your failures? What did that look like? Yeah, I've had some big ones. So I'd say I'd say one of them, I got hooked up with these guys in Florida that dealt with uh, real estate, pre-construction real estate back in, I don't know, it was a while ago, like 15 years ago, maybe when I was in digital marketing and I got hooked up with them. Turns out they were scammers. I took a mortgage on my house for, for this, because I had to keep traveling to Florida back and forth. I lost like forty fifty thousand dollars $50,000. That was when it stung. Like, it's like, if things look too good to be true, which a lot of them in the digital space now do, they usually are. But then you have to watch out. Most, most of the time you're going to fail anyways, and then figure it out just because of how you ruin how the world works. But then you got to watch out for these jerks out there that are actively trying to rip you off too. You know what I mean? So so that's what experience there. This guy was an actual scammer, like scamming people. And I just got involved in it and 
got the short end there. I don't know. I, I probably fail. I fail all the time. It's like, I look at if I'm not failing and getting uncomfortable, these are all small fails normally now though. It's like, then I, I feel like I'm not pushing myself. I love that you mentioned getting uncomfortable because for me, that's so important that, and, and you will always be for me inside of your comfort zone. If you are just playing small, you know, if you actually want to build something of your own or do something that is really meaningful, that means a lot to you, whether it be start a business or, you know, like me, leave your home country and never go back or whatever. There's, there's so many different, you know, realms of life that this falls into. But if you are not being uncomfortable, you are not going to make a change and no nothing changes. It changes. 100% agree. Yeah, yeah. I, I enjoy being, I don't enjoy being uncomfortable, but I do also because it's like, I know I'm growing and I, I prefer to like get into rooms and feel real stupid. Like get in rooms with the guys crushing it because you're going to elevate to whatever level of the people you're around. Okay, so where can people find you and your, your side hustle, your business? Where can people find you within the online space? Yeah, sure. So our website's motivatedleads.com. And we have a podcast on there too. You can learn about it. Uh, just click the button at the top podcast. You've just listened to the Work, Wealth, and Travel podcast. If anything from this episode resonated with you, I would appreciate if you share this podcast on your socials. And of course, be sure to tag me. And don't forget to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for joining me on this global citizen journey. And I'll see you in the next episode.